Third day he arose. Hope is alive. It's one of the most awesome things to realize that we have hope, a living hope. As we were contemplating as a preaching team what we'd be talking about today, we started talking about just what hope means and how we really can't live without hope. You know, it's been said that man can live several weeks without food. He can live a few days without water. He can live minutes without air, but not a moment without hope. It's reminded me of a story of this submarine that had uh, been wounded and it ended up going down to the bottom of the ocean with all the soldiers still alive within it. And these governments were going back and forth trying to figure out how to save these men before the oxygen ran out. And as they sent divers down there trying to figure out how to extricate these, uh, these men, they heard this sound of a tapping, tapping, and they realized that it was Morse code. And, and what it was saying was this, is there any hope? We need hope. It's interesting to me that the scripture says that it comes down to three things in life, faith, hope, and love. But we need hope. We need hope to survive. It's, it's hope that keeps us going. It's hope that politicians peddle, that there can be change, that there can be something different. It's hope that keeps that couple in that marriage to fight on, that maybe there will be something that will go on that will change. It is hope that we need each and every day as we go forth trying to live our lives that something can be different. It is hope. It reminds me of, this, of, the, of that story or one of those videos that I've seen on YouTube. And I love those stories of those couples that are being united after um, one has been overseas in the military. I watch those things and I bawl like a baby. And one of the, the, the best ones that I've shared just before is, is of this uh, family from South Carolina. And they're at the South, University of South Carolina football game playing the Georgia Bulldogs. And they decided to bring out this family to honor them. Um, and it was a wife and her, uh, I believe, two or three children that are there. And they bring them out to midfield, and they're honoring them and uh, thanking, you, thanking them for their, allowing their husband to go and serve their country and fight overseas. And as, a, as the, the announcer is speaking, he mentions that there's a video of the dad, and he speaks to the, the family, and he comes up on the screen, the big jumbo uh, screen that they have there, and, and he he's, starts addressing his family, and he's sitting at this desk with his hands folded with his fatigues on, and he just talks about how much he loves them. And he says, I know how much you've sacrificed. I know how much we've had to move. I know how much you've had to, to give up having me not be there, and I know how much you miss me, and I miss you too. But I want you to know that I'm going to see you real, real soon. And the wife is crying. The tears are just flowing down. The kids are crying too. And then you hear the announcer say again, and you can't really hear it in the video, what's being said, but all you hear is the crowd roar. And then you see the face of the wife and the children, and they look up in the tunnel, and there he is. And you see them run to their dad. There's no, there's no holding back. There is, he's here. And they just run and grab him, and their tears are just flowing because they're being reunited together. See, that's the realization of hope. And for the disciples during that time, I mean, can you imagine how much hope they had? See, hope is really measured against the difficulty in which it finds itself. For the prisoner, we don't understand their hope until we understand their confinement. For the person who's the addict, for the person who's in that loveless marriage, the person who has suffered, suffered so much emotional uh, trauma or physical trauma or whatever it might be and they see that and they 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 look for hope because it becomes so dark and dim that we despair and it had to have been that way for the disciples 
I mean, they put all of their hope on Jesus. They walked with him for three years. They'd seen who he really was in and out, the good times and the bad times. They saw him faithfully being there, being for them, teaching them, encouraging them, coming alongside them, mediating their conflicts, showing his love for so many people as they were coming. When he was so tired, he's healing people, he's loving them, he's restoring them to their families. I mean, you have to understand how how much hope these people had in him. He healed the sick. I mean, now we go to the doctor, we have physicians, we have all of these different things that we face. Back then, they didn't have that. Some of these diseases that they, were, they, they would get, not just, they weren't just death sentences. They were complete ways of removing them as outcasts from society. If they had these certain skin diseases, they had to be removed from the other people. And they were alone. And there was no one to talk to, no one to interact with. And they came in and people had to, to be uh, removed from them. They didn't want to get close to them. And we have these people, whether it was because of a physical infirmity or because of something spiritual they had done, they'd been cast out, and Jesus brings them back. He gives them hope. And he'd given the disciples hope. He'd given the crowds hope. He gave everyone hope. And then to have him killed, to have him betrayed by one of their own. I mean, just as Jesus was on the rise and his popularity was really starting to crest and, and everybody was saying, Hosanna, here comes, the, here comes the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He crashes down like a meteor in a ball of flames, humiliated, naked, hanging on that cross, bleeding everything that they, they knew. I mean, it was like PTSD, like what just happened? Just, just the other day we were celebrating together. We were eating together. How did this occur? I, and then they're thinking, well, what about us? We're followers of Jesus. Maybe, maybe we'll be killed too. We've we got to hide. So they, they hide away in the upper room. I mean, they're fearful. But then one of the women shows up and goes, he's not there. He's not there. We went, we went to go see him. He's not there. And they're like, Psh, lady, come on. <laughs> Jesus did a lot of miracles, but that's the biggest miracle of all. She's like, exactly. <laughs> you need to go. And they take off like Usain Bolt, making their way to the, the tomb. And they can't, they, they see the grave clothes. Now hope has a question mark. I mean, first it was hope with an exclamation, I mean, hope with a period. They see Jesus, and then he dies, and they put a big line through it, and it's strike, it's struck through. And then they erase the strike through mark, and then, because they see him, and it becomes multiple explana- ex- exclamation points. Because that's what hope is. Hope gives life. Hope transforms. You know, the Bible talks about a great deal about hope. As I said before, matter of fact, you can see throughout the New Testament, there are these three strands that are woven throughout every letter of the the New Testament, or Paul's letters, excuse me, and it's faith, hope, and love. And right now we have hope. I mean, we have faith, we have hope, we have love. You know, what's interesting is that there's no need for faith or hope in eternity. Realize that? There's no need to have faith because he's right there in front of you. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. He's right there. There's no need to hope because it's never going to be bad again. Because hope has been realized. There's only love that endures. But right now we live in hope because we live on this side of eternity. And we put our hope. And my question is, is where's your hope? What's your hope in? Today I want us to, to look at hope. But we're going to examine what is known as one of the earliest Christian creeds. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul writes this to this church at Corinth with this metropolitan, very immoral city. 
And he writes them to clarify their hope and lay out the basic rudiments of what the gospel is and what it means for each one of our lives as we see hope. Because really, we can't live a moment without hope. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have one, if not, just listen in as we examine this great passage. But before we go any further, I want to ask God by his Holy Spirit to speak to us today. So let's take a moment to pause, to pray, and ask him to help us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, I tremble before you because you are the creator of life. There's not a planet, star, or galaxy that you have not purposed or fashioned. You've created every color and sound. You made us to feel, to know. You've placed longings within our hearts. And you are the one who forgives sin, the only one who can forgive sin. Therefore, as the scripture says, you are to be feared. As your servant, C.S. Lewis, said, you're not a tame lion. Lord, forgive us for trying to tame you. And we ask you to release and show us who you really are. Release your power on us right now. Convict our hearts and our minds. May we really see you as God and know you as God. Speak to our hearts. Lord, there are so many here today that are hopeless that are despairing, that are wondering whether or not they are going to end it all. I pray that you show, I pray, Lord, that you show them that you are the God of hope and that your hope is a living hope and it is available to each one of us. So, Lord, rebuke us, change us, challenge us, enrich us, speak to us, but let us not go forth from this place without hearing from you. We pray you be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in one of these earliest Christian creeds. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. Which you received and which you stand. This is what you live by and by which you are being saved. You are being transformed If you hold fast, if you hold on to this word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, meaning that you're going to persevere on, you're going to continue to do this. See, some people say, I prayed the prayer and it's done. I signed the insurance form, got the liability, and I'm all good. That's not what the Bible presents. The idea is, is that we come to know Jesus, but we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That's when it ends when we step into eternity. But it was all based on what God has done in us, and what God, first of all, did in his son first. But Paul says, unless you believed in vain, and he says in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, primary, this is what I want you to understand, what I got first, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I want to look at hope generally, and then I want to just look at it uh, how God has made us to need hope. And then I want to look at this passage and really zoom in specifically. And I want us to understand hope generally first. Here's this. Here's the first point I want you to write down, and you can write this down in your notes. Hope is absolutely critical for us to live. 
period. It's critical. You need hope. That's why the people that are, are getting ready to commit suicide, they don't see hope. I had a man when I, was a church, when I was a pastor in New England, and we had a Sunday evening service, and he came and sat in the back. I remember him very vividly. Uh, Manuel Vargas. Um, Manuel had gone through just a lot, never been married, wanted to be married, uh, was having a hard time at his job. He couldn't do it physically anymore. And then he ended up having a stroke, and he kind of left him uh, just infirm, and he was coming to church, and he was trying to uh, have hope. And we're talking to him and sharing with him and, and trying to love him and spending time with him. But no matter how much we talked to him, no matter how much he just couldn't hear, he wouldn't hear. And, and I'm, I'm scared for him because I know he's thinking about taking his life. And when someone's thinking about taking their life, you know, like if they tell you how they were thinking about doing it, then that means they're close to doing it. And so we're reaching out to him. And one night he leaves the service and I call the police department. And I'm like, I, please check on this guy. Just do a wellness check. I'm just really nervous for him right now. And they check on him and he's okay. But he was so embarrassed, he didn't come to church anymore. But I was mortified. There's no way I was going to let him leave that night without showing him we loved him and cared for him. And then I get a phone call from the police department three weeks later. And they said, do you know Manuel Vargas? I said, yeah. I said, before you go any further, let me guess, he's dead. I said, yeah, how'd you know? I said, he's, he's been dealing with this for a long time. See, he just had no hope. See, that, it's essential that we have hope. That's what politicians do, by the way. When you're, when you're going to election season, we can make a difference. We are the change we've been waiting for. Or we've been doing this. Every politician does it. I don't care who they are. They try to sell hope. That's what they do. I mean, that's a good politician in that they want to show you that there can be change. But the reality is, is politicians only can do so much. I mean, the question is, is what's your hope in? Think about the crowds when, when they were shouting to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord. See, their hope wasn't really in Jesus. Their hope was in a political kingdom that was coming, not a spiritual one. And so there's many of us here that have put our hope in politics. And you get really irritated when other people post fake news online. Or different stories about your candidate and you throw it up. And people go back and forth and you get angry. Let me tell you. Jesus is not in the White House. He's never been in the White House. He will never be in the White House. No politician can give the hope that Jesus can. No politician. Where's your hope? Is it it in an ideal or in a philosophy? Maybe your hope is in yourself and what you can do. I see that in young people a lot. You know, uh, young people, you guys are great, especially, you know, when you're to like 18 to like 25, maybe 30, man, you can take on the world. No one knows anything except what you know. And then something happens in life. It's called life. And then you start getting bills. <laughs> and you're like, why do I keep getting bills mail? <laughs> and these bills roll in, and you're like, man, everybody should give me a participation trophy. I'm so good. I do this. And, and then you have other things happen, and limitations start to occur, and you realize that you're pretty limited in what you can do. But our world tells you you can do whatever you want. Reality is, is you can't. You can't. I know that goes against the grain of everything that we know. And that's why, by the way, that's why, by the way, TV shows like America's Got Talent, everybody loves that because it's hope. Hope I can be that. Hope I can do that. Or, or Biggest Loser, I can lose weight. It's hope, Right? See, we, it's hope all the time. It's always hope. It's hope, hope, hope. And it's critical for living, and we need hope. Because what it does, it removes us from d- despair and enables us to dream. Hope enables us to dream. It gives us the ability 
to dream. And we need that ability to dream. That's what hope does. That's what all great leaders do, is gives us the ability to dream. And when I think of dreaming and I think of leaders giving hope, probably no one better than Martin Luther King Jr. No one better than him. And his speech, I Have a Dream, that gave hope to so many millions of people. So many people that had been oppressed, that had been marginalized, that had been suffering injustice. And he, he, he put the words, uh, he put it into words what people were feeling in their hearts. And he gave them hope to fight for something, to go on, to, to do, to, to see justice being done. I love that speech. One of the greatest speeches in American history. And he was giving hope. And it is critical for us as we live. Because you know what it does? It enables us to imagine a world, and that's what hope does, is it piques the imagination. And imagination can be harnessed for fear, or it can be harnessed for hope. And it's, it's the despair, that's where it's harnessed for fear, and our imagination goes to all the things that could be. That's why, by the way, that you get stressed out when you go to Jewel and you have to pick between 25 different cereals. Sounds a little silly, but do you know this? The more choices that you have, it shows that more exponentially your stress increases. And you're like, because you're afraid you're going to choose wrong. You're like, ah, do I have the Frosted Flakes or maybe the Frosted Flakes with sugar or maybe the gluten-free Frosted Flakes or maybe the sugar-free Frosted Flakes? I don't know, right? And it, and it changes. That stress inc- increases. But see, what it does is it hope, actually, it harnesses the imagination and we think it could go wrong and that's what it is when it's harnessed for fear. But when it's harnessed for hope, the sky's the limit because we know it's going to be Okay. And see, because, you know why? Because it really envisions a world that's different. It's different than it is. I mean, think about it. That's why if, if you go back and you look at people that have been through extreme suffering, what got them through it? It was hope. People that died, especially of those that they've interviewed survivors of the concentration camps and the, the people that had died very quickly are the ones that couldn't see hope and despaired and died. But those who fought on and escaped that hell because they held on to hope. See, that's what hope does, is it makes us think things can be different. Different. That what we do makes a difference. See, hope does deliver us from despair. I found this story as I was researching this sermon about uh, this remarkable story of a B-17 bomber who was flying this bombing mission over Germany in the latter days of World War II. The plane was hit several times. I mean, just boom, boom, boom. It's being hit left and right by shells and flak. I mean, over and over and over and over and over again. They're getting hit. They're not blowing up, right? When they land the plane, they land the plane, they see all of these artillery, artillery shells in there, and not one of them exploded. I mean, there was 11 of the 20-millimeter shells on this um, assembly line, or actually had gone uh, through the assembly line in the Czech underground. They see these, these uh, uh, bullets or shells had been developed by the Czech, the Czech people as they were under occupation of the German government and they had forced them to make these, these, uh, these bombs, in essence, and these guns. And so what they did was, is they actually took the gunpowder out. And so that when they were hitting, it wasn't causing an explosion. And when they pulled one of the bullets out, it actually said this, translated from the Czech, and it said this, this is all we can do for you now. 
See, what they were saying was is that this is where our, our hope is to make a difference in this war, and, and we're stuck in this prison, in essence, and, and by these guys who are just horrendous and killing us, and this is the one thing that we can do. We have a hope that we can make a difference, even not putting it in and making a difference in the war, and it did. See, hope is critical. It shows us that things can be different. It keeps us going. It motivates us. It motivates you in school. I want to get an education so I can be different. It gives you hope. That's why people stand at the altar and they say, I want to be married. It's a hope that our life is going to be better. It's when, when that child, when that woman is pregnant and she's holding that baby in her, in her womb and her belly and she's thinking about this child because the child represents hope. That's why everybody loves Christmas. Everybody loves the baby. It's the crucified naked carpenter that people have a hard time with because here's the birth of hope and here's the death of hope. But see, that's where the resurrection is so awesome that it changes everything that we know. And the reality is, is each one of us in this room have a choice where our hope, where we find our hope. See, we're, we all are wired to have hope, every one of us. And this is a choice we have to make. My question to you is, is where is your hope at? What is your hope in? Is it in yourself? Is it in politics? See, the crowds had their hope in a political system, not a spiritual one. They didn't understand the spiritual kingdom that would be manifested later physically, but it was beginning spiritually. And there are there others, the disciples. I mean, they, they, wanted, uh, they had their hope, and when they saw Jesus getting ready to be tried, they were more, their hope was more in the circumstances, and they were so fearful they couldn't see Jesus through them, so they gave over to despair. So they were more in their, their fear than they were in faith. And see, Judas, think about Judas. Judas had walked with Jesus. He'd seen the miracles. I mean, he had been involved. He'd been in the church services. He'd heard the sermons. He'd seen the miracles. I mean, he would have been there, done that. It was great. But where was his hope? His hope was in his treasure, not the truth. And he was the guy that took the money bag and took care. He was the treasurer of the group, and he would just help himself every once in a while. And so it was in his treasure, not the truth. I mean, there are so many of us, we are so good with our comforts. We're so good with our money. We're so good at just what's going on. We're doing good. We don't need God. The reality is our hope is in ourselves and in our stuff. Let me tell you, in a moment, that can be taken away. In a moment. Just in a moment. You have no idea what's going to happen when you leave this place. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You could have an aneurysm. You could have a stroke. You could have a heart attack. You could be incapacitated. Where's your hope really at? What is it really in? Where is your hope? That's what we have to ask ourselves. It's a choice that each one of us must make, and Paul understood that. And that's why he's laying this out for them. He says, I want to remind you where your hope is. I want to remind you of the gospel because it's good news. And it's not just for you spiritually, but it translates into every part of your life, emotionally, mentally, physically, how you live, how you conduct, how you live as a citizen of this world, how you engage with your family, how you do your work. He goes, I want to remind you of this, which is of, of first importance, where your hope lies. And let me tell you something about this hope. This is a hope that is reliable. So we need hope that's reliable. Let me tell you, if your hope is in yourself, that's not reliable. It's not. Because you change. You get hungry, you get angry, you have things that happen to you in a circumstance, and it changes, and you're up, and you're down, and you're all back and forth. And, and, and the older that you get, you find how less reliable you really are. 
I learned this, you know, when I was a young guy, uh, when I was a young guy, I remember getting my hair done. And I remember my barber saying to me, man, your hair is so thick, it clogs my, my clippers. My hope was in my hair. <laughs> goes away. It goes away. Your body changes. I once had a six-pack. I traded it for a keg. It's true, your body changes, right? It just it does. And if your hope is in your, in your beauty, beauty fades. It's in your strength, changes. Even in your intellect, your mind, you can't remember things as fast as you used to. See, we have to have a hope that's reliable. Politicians will say what they need to say to get elected. This is a hope that will not disappoint and a hope that will not fail. It is a hope that is absolutely certain, not a wish, but it is something so certain. And it's not this nebulous hope, it is a firm hope. And that's why Paul says, I goes, what I received, I received this hope. I learned about it from looking at the scriptures and hearing about it and encountering Jesus myself. That's what he says. He says, what I, also, I would deliver to you in verse 3 as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the reliable truth. This word that I have received, this Bible, this truth that has lasted for thousands of years, this is the most controversial book in the history of man. This book is illegal in certain countries. Why? Because it changes lives. Because it's a living book. That's why people want to smuggle it in because they know that there's going to be changes in the hearts and minds of different people. That's why people try to get rid of it. That's why it's the most purchased book, the most read book, the most translated book. And, it's, and that happens all the time. And it's, there's no greater, more controversial book in the history of man. Because within it contains truth, bedrock truth to live by. And there's some really hard stuff in here to understand. But it's not the stuff that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the stuff I do understand. It's the stuff that makes sense. And it's reliable. And Paul's saying, I received a tradition. And I'm passing it on to you. And it was foretold that Jesus was coming. I mean, and the prophecies about Jesus are pretty amazing. They said he would be born of a virgin. That he would, he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be coming out of Egypt. That he would be living in Nazareth. He'd be a Galilean. He, he did all of those different things. And they talked about even the manner that he would die. And it's incredible, all of these prophecies about Jesus. I mean, even on Friday night, we looked at what happened when Jesus was laid on the cross, and they would have pulled his arms apart and basically dislocated them, pulling him out. And they would have put the nail within his wrist, which was considered part of the hand, to hold it up. And it would, his arms would have been out of joint. And in Psalm 22, which was written hundreds of years before, it says, all of my bones are out of joint. I mean, you have prophecies throughout the book of Psalms of Jesus again and again and again. The book of Isaiah. These are hundreds of years before they happen. And some people just write it off like it's no big deal or it's just coincident. These, these, are, these are things that are verified. Even secular historians say uh, that our unbelievers verify the truths of Christ's life. And they say there's unparalleled imagery of, man, it sure seems like this is about him. And we see that there's something that's trustworthy, something that's reliable. And this hope is completely reliable. That's what Paul is talking about. The resurrection is the hinge upon which Christianity turns. Some see Jesus as a good teacher. You can't see Jesus as a good teacher. 
Because Jesus said that he could forgive sins and that he was God. So if he was a good teacher, he was a nut job. Seriously. Where it's a great philosophy. He says, take up your cross and be ready to suffer and die. That's not a real philosophy I hear people spouting in Greek, or their, you know, their philosophy class in college. Right? It's, it's so much more than that. And we see the, the testimony of Christ borne out on people's lives. I had a young man uh, was talking to me about baptism, uh, actually one of the candidates we have in our second service, and he was talking about what works. And I said, he goes, uh, you know, I, I see that I, I believe in Jesus because I see that it's what works. And I said, well, and he goes, my life will get better. And I said, hold on. I said, let me stop you right there. That's not true. And he, he was shocked. Like, what do you mean? Jesus is supposed to make my life better. He's actually going to make your life worse. That doesn't really sell the baptism, does it? Right? It is. I mean, think about it. Why would someone want to be a Christian? As a matter of fact, there was a headline run yesterday. It says this. The Christianity, the Christians are the most persecuted group in the entire world. Matter of fact, nearly 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 600 million Christians were prevented from practicing their faith. What we're doing right now is illegal in almost 35 countries. This is illegal. You could be arrested and tried, possibly your family killed. Now you want to follow Jesus? And see, yet these disciples did exactly that because they understood that he was completely reliable. They couldn't deny that. Because for them, it wasn't a pipe dream and it wasn't a myth. It was based in reality. It was based in reality. See, that's our hope. It's not in some dream or ideal. It's in a concrete reality. And here's what I mean by that. You know, it's interesting. When I was in uh, graduate school, I remember reading different um, religions, backgrounds, whether it's Greek mythology. I, I studied Egyptology quite a bit, looking into Hindu mythology or the Sumerian tradition or the Persian tradition and examining. And one of the things that struck me was that there was a resurrection in almost every single one of those religions. And I, I hear people that are unbelievers say, look, the resurrection is not new to Christianity. There's resurrection in all these different faiths. And one of them really struck me was a book I read on the Egyptian god of Osiris. And Osiris was one of the Egyptian pantheon of gods, known as the god of death, who uh, um, had a twin sister named Isis, whom he also married. Um, and he ends up being killed and cut into all these pieces. And then his, his sister wife goes off and then finds the different pieces, puts them back together, and he resurrects from the dead. And people are like, see, Christianity stole that. I said, okay, it bugged me. At first, because I'm, a pers- I'm not a person that would say, um, hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead or if they found his body, it wouldn't affect my faith. Oh, it would affect my faith. <laughs> it would affect my faith greatly. And I hear people say, oh, if they found Jesus' body, that wouldn't affect my faith. It would affect me greatly. Matter of fact, it affected Paul. He, Paul said, if, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then we are above all men to be pitied. Because we're putting our life on the line then for a lie. But see, Osiris, when I looked at Osiris, I noticed there was a big difference. As I looked at Addis or Adonis, as I went through all of these different religions and uh, looked at all, each one of them, or Dionysius or Talmuds in Sumerian mythology, I noticed there was something very, very different about Jesus. I mean, them, it was this kind of myth. It wasn't one book that it came from. And it was more of this thing that had been shared orally over time. But with Jesus, you have something taking place in history. You have people that are cited that secular historians mention. You have eyewitnesses to the fact that he was there. People, that's why Paul says in the passage, he says that he was raised 
on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas. There's one, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And Paul wants to be a very careful historian. He says, he, he appeared to 500 people, but if you want to go find those 500 people, you're not going to find all of them because some of them have died. But he's saying it's based on truth. People saw this. This isn't just in your imagination. This wasn't just one person seeing it for everybody else. I mean, he saw 500 people at one time saw him, and they were all eyewitnesses. It was based in reality. I mean, and these people were transformed, and they placed their faith, their hope in Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the name Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson uh, is with Jesus now, but uh, he was most famous for um, his participation in the Watergate scandal during uh, Nixon's administration, and he served some time in prison. And while in prison, he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he, he wrote this, though, about the resurrection. I'm going to read this quote for you, and it's amazing. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, Watergate, how does Watergate prove the resurrection? And he says this. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, and stoned and put in prison. They would have not have endured that if they weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Prove the reality of the resurrection. We see then that our hope, it's found in reality, but that reality is actually a person, and that person is Christ. That's hope. Our hope is Christ. That's the third point that you can write down. Our hope is Christ who proved himself trustworthy. His resurrection ended up being the exclamation point on everything that he said. If he just would have died and no resurrection, we would be, we'd be looking at him like Gandhi or another moral teacher or Deepak Chopra or Buddha or whatever. We'd be saying, oh, he was a great teacher and showed us a different way and teacher Jesus did this and that. No, it's the resurrection that changed the entire equation. It changed who we are. He proved himself trustworthy. He showed himself to be God. And his resurrection is a solution to all of our problems. And I'm talking about the real big problems that we face in our lives. And the biggest problem that we face, that every one of us in this room face, is death. He turns it backwards. He reverses the curse. He proves himself to be God. I mean, that's it. It's a solution to our problems. And that's why he mentions within this text, he says some of them have fallen asleep. He doesn't say dead, gone, no hope. The idea is is they're going to wake up one day. There's hope for them. That it's not the end. The grave is not the end. They've fallen asleep to be woken up. That they they will have a life beyond this one. He is a solution to our problems. And our biggest problem that we face is death. He is a solution to our problems. He solves them, but he also grants us supernatural power. We don't talk about the, who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, um, one of the persons of the Godhead. And he, he is a person that enters into us the moment that we trust in Christ for who he really is. And then he begins transforming us, removing us from our old way of life, and making us into new creatures. 
The reason that I stand before you today is because I have hope in the resurrection because it is the resurrection of Christ that changed me from my old way of life to be a man of God. And he can change you. He transforms hearts and minds. And that's why Paul says, first he appeared to Cephas. Why? Cephas needed that reaffirmation. Remember, Peter had denied the Lord. He had been big and bold. Jesus, I would die for you, okay? These guys might deny you. You can trust me, Jesus. We got this. We got this. I got you. I got you, Jesus. And it wasn't even 12 hours later where the, little, uh, 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 the servant girl comes up and goes, Surely you were with Jesus. Yo, 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 I'm not with Jesus. I'm not with Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, you have hit that accent of the Galileans. You sound like you're from Galilee. Hey, this guy was with Jesus. Shut up. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't with Jesus. And he denies him. We see he denies him three times. And then that cock crows, that rooster crows. And then he says, as a matter of fact, in John it says that Jesus looked right at him. And you could just, Peter just going, denied him. He denied him. See, that's why he says he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to Peter because Peter needed that hope. He needed to know that this wasn't the end, that he could still be forgiven, that he could still have hope, that he might have denied Jesus, but now he can have hope in Jesus. And you might have denied Jesus. And Jesus is saying to you, I can give you hope. You might have screwed up. You might have messed up. You might have done everything that you can have done. I mean, you could have been locked up, shot up, brought up, dragged up. He could have, he can transform you. That's what he did. That's what the resurrection's about. And he gave hope to Cephas. He gave hope to Peter, but he's not the only one. That's where Paul continues to go on. And he says, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He doesn't give their names, but here he includes them. Right after that in verse 7, then he appeared to James. James. James is the book we've been studying. James is the one who was Jesus' brother, half-brother. Jesus, he's the one who saw Jesus growing up. He wasn't a believer. He thought Jesus was crazy until he had, saw him in the resurrection. And that changed James. Matter of fact, James becomes one of the leaders of the church and becomes the author of the book that we've been studying over the past several weeks. He's changed. And then there's another one, Paul. Paul is changed. For he says there in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Meaning that I, I saw him later than the other disciples did. I wasn't there. I mean, you got to remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church of God. I mean, Paul went out of his way to hunt people down that were followers of Jesus. He was rooting them out. He was going town to town. He goes, i got to pass and a permit to take these people out. He's showing up at persecution rallies going, I'll hold your coat. Here's a stone. That's what he's doing. He's participating. He's, he's persecuting the church of God until he comes to an interaction with the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. And he goes blind because God is saying to him, you had eyes, but you spiritually can't see. And now I'm going to take your physical eyes away, but I want you to spiritually see the risen Jesus. I want you to see me. And Paul is, he is totally transformed. He becomes one of the greatest uh, followers of Jesus in the history of the world. Becomes the author of so many of the books of the New Testament. He becomes the vessel to, and one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. He endures beatings and floggings and shipwrecks and being stripped naked and being persecuted by his countrymen, persecuted in the city, persecuted in the high, on, the, on the highways. I mean, this guy went through hell. 
He kept coming back because he knew he was the risen Christ. He witnessed him. And then, because God had placed, after God had revealed himself to him, he places his spirit within him and transforms him. And see, that's what God does with us. That if you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've got no hope. I've been putting my hope in myself. I've been putting my hope in politics. I've been putting hope in my treasure. I've been putting hope in everything else but you. But Lord, I've screwed it up. Lord, I need you. And you surrender yourself to him, and he will place his spirit within you, and he will begin transforming you from the inside out, because that's when God's at his best. That's when God's at his best, is when he transforms hearts and minds. And some of you, you've been looking for the deliverance aspect, but you've been looking for the, the momentous experience and not the Messiah. And that's why you're struggling. You're going through day in and day out going, I don't get it from church, because you're looking for a, like a high. You don't understand what it means to walk with Jesus and apply his word to your daily life and to live this transformation, to follow the Messiah in the mundane. You're so busy looking for the miraculous. The miraculous happens in the mundane. You want deliverance but not discipleship. And he says, I'll give you deliverance along with discipleship. But you just want the deliverance and not the discipleship. You don't want to die daily. But that's what he's saying to you. That's what the resurrection shows, that he died so that he died your death. That you could have life in and through him. You would have hope. And it's not just a theoretical hope. It's a certain hope that will never, ever, 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 ever be taken away. That's what it means. That's what the resurrection is. He grants us great and supernatural power. See, this past Friday night, we examined what actually happened on the cross. That Jesus became the propitiation for our sins, that he took the very wrath of God. That's what propitiation means, that he took the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to. And then he offers up himself, gives himself to us to be our Savior, and then he gives us his spirit that we might continue to walk with him. You know, I'm reminded of the story of the boy at the supermarket. He was with his mother in the cart, and he asked his mother for some chocolate chip cookies. So, Mama, I want some chocolate chip cookies. And she said, no chocolate chips today, honey. And as they continued shopping, the little boy said, but Mama, I want some chocolate chip cookies. She goes, no, no, no chocolate chip cookies today. Mama, please, why won't you get me some chocolate chip cookies? She said, boy, you are getting on my nerves. I told you we're not getting chocolate chip cookies today. She continued to shop. Mama, I'm begging you for some chocolate chip cookies. Son, you're about to get in trouble. I'm about to put a print of my hand on your rear end. And so she goes, if you ask me again, I'm going to have to punish you. So she got in the checkout line, and while waiting, the little boy stood up in the cart, clasped his hands, and looked up to heaven and said, Jesus, my mama won't give me any chocolate chip cookies, but you told me to pray to you about anything. I'm asking you to make a way for me to get some chocolate chip cookies because my mama is not giving me any chocolate chip cookies. The little boy kept on praying, Oh, please, Jesus, give me some chocolate chip cookies. Now people are starting to look at this boy. And his mother got so embarrassed, she went and got two packs of chocolate chip cookies. She came back, put them in the cart, and he said, Thank you, Jesus. See, many Christians today are in the checkout line. They're ready to check out on God, check out on the church, check out on their face. 
But we must, we must not forget to stop, look up, and call on Jesus, telling him that we're depending on him and we're relying on him, that our hope is only in him. That's what we need to do. Are you in the checkout line? Has your hope been in other things and not in Jesus? Jesus is offering himself to you. And he says that anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you hope. I will transform you from the inside out. It's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to get a little harder, but it's going to be worth it. Because I'm giving you forgiveness of sins. I'm giving you peace. I'm giving you purpose. And I'm giving you the power to put away those sins and live the life that I want you to live. And it's available to you. It's available to anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. And he will save. Scripture is very clear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, 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 you will be saved and transformed. And it says in, in Scripture that you become a new creation, a new person. The old has passed away, the new has come. You are not who you were. You are now a new person. You've been alive, made alive, truly alive, forgiven, and given peace with God. I'm going to take a moment. I want to pray. And if you want to call on the name of the Lord, do that now. Maybe you're a person here today and says, you know what? I am a person who has hope, and I've had hope in Christ, but I've turned and tried to find hope in other things. I would encourage you to repent and turn back. Turn back to the risen Savior who's ready to receive you and give you true hope. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are the awesome God. That you are the one who truly gives hope. A hope that is certain. Not like a politician. We don't know if they're going to fulfill what they say. Not in any other uh, system or philosophy that we don't know about. But in a a certainty that has has been seen by so many eyewitnesses. With your resurrection from the dead. Lord, I pray today that if there's someone here that needs you as Lord and Savior of their life, that have been living on their own, that they've been in the checkout line, Lord, I pray that they might call on you and that you will receive them. And that if, you, if they confess with their heart, mouth that Jesus is Lord, and they say, Lord, you are God. I repent of my sins. Receive me as your child. Lord, that you will transform them. You will forgive their sins. Cleanse them and make them new and place your spirit within them to help live this life that you want them to live. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in our lives, what you've done in our midst, what you're doing in our church, what you're doing in our families. And Lord, please show us that there's hope. Remind us over and over again the truths of your word because we know that the devil wants to bring us down and make us despair. But help us to cling to the truths within your word that say that we have a living hope, that Jesus is our hope. May we not give the devil a foothold, but may we continue to hold on to you. And we look forward to what you're going to do your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.